Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the latest safety review on the Red Hill says more lighting is needed on the parkway. The Ontario government is looking at changing how police oversight is handled in the province. Also, Jody Wilson-Raybould will be testifying later as part of the parliamentary probe of the SNC-Lavalin controversy. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Another week and uh, and more concern and more talk about what's going on with the Red Hill. And, uh, of course, there was the, the report that the council never saw. We know all about that now and the concern about safety issues on there. And this this actually dovetails into some ongoing discussions that city council have had for a number of years, actually since the, the road opened, about safety measures and a number of other things. And council, to their credit, have actually started some initiatives in that regard. Well, there's another report right now, the latest safety review of the Red Hill Valley Parkway, says more lighting is needed. Now, not everybody's on side with that, including some of the area residents and some environmentalists. Chad Collins is uh, the counselor for Ward 5, and uh, actually, uh, and he joins us right now on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Thanks, Chad, for the uh, time. Glad you could join us today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. I was going to paraphrase Sarah Palin and say you can actually see the Red Hill from your backyard from where you live out in the east end of the city, but I mean, I, you, you're pretty, I, almost, I, almost. You're I, well I, acquainted I, with the road. Let's put it that way. That's right. I'm a couple of blocks from it from a residential perspective, and I use it every day like many Hamiltonians do. All right, let's let's talk about the lighting issue, and we'll maybe dovetail into some of these other things. And I wanted to get your read, because I haven't talked to you for a week or two about uh, some of the other things that have cropped up. Lighting, mm-hmm. lighting has been a concern and, and almost a controversial issue right from day one, hasn't it? It has, and I, you know, um, I was on council when we were just in the final stages of the environmental assessment. And, um, and certainly, if you, you go back to those days, you know, we had um, the Save the Valley group, and um, we, we also had the countering groups, uh, Expressway the Right Way group. And, um, and there was the back and forth over, you know, the, the loss of trees, certainly the impact on the natural environment, including wildlife. And then there was certainly lots of discussion, probably going back to the 1950s, well before my time, in terms of the impact of, that the road would have on the adjacent area. And, and that included a discussion around uh, certainly lights uh, and uh, obviously uh, air pollution, uh, noise from the vehicles. And so, um, yeah, lots of discussion in terms of its original design and, and the impact that it would have not just on the natural environment, environment, but for those people who use the valley for recreational purposes back in the day and those people who resided around it on a, on a permanent basis. And that, so, yeah. by the way, that historical perspective I think is rather interesting because for those that weren't around back in those days, uh, they need to understand that the design of that road, and, and as you mentioned, even the accoutrements along the road, that, it's mm-hmm. really a compromise, isn't it? Because that's not the way it was, it was planned initially anyway. That's right. And, you know, many of, the, um, many of the changes that were made during the environmental assessment review process were as a result of those discussions and the compromises that came about with those people who were fighting for a better environment and for a road that would be more integrated and more sustainable uh, as it relates to its uh, correlation with the valley adjacent to it and obviously those neighbours who live next to it. And so, the, you know, I think you had Councillor Marul on before who talked about the geometry of the road and how that was changed and altered in order to miss the creek. And, um, you know, there was some concern historically, Bill, if you go back to the, the 70s and I think even into the 80s, some of the, many of the creeks locally were redesigned and rechanneled with concrete. And yeah. so it was very common back in those days just to pour concrete along the, the banks, uh, move the creek over, and uh, and there are consequences, there are environmental issues that uh, are related to that. And, and as time has progressed, those uh, environmental standards have changed. 
And we now today do everything we can to ensure that we leave the natural environment in, in its original place as best as possible. And so the geometry of the road, back to your question, was part of that discussion. Because um, initially, because I've, I've heard, I'm sure you have, Chad, people say, why can't it just be like a straight line like the, the link yeah. is for the most part? And I said, well, that was sort of what was conceived initially. That's right. But uh, the, the NDP government back in the early 90s actually hired David Crombie, the former Toronto mayor, uh, to do assessment. And uh, he actually said, yeah, you need the road and it needs to be there, not over in Fruitland Road, which is one of the other options. But Correct. they talked about, well, basically the configuration that you've got now and said that's the most environmentally friendly way to do it. That's right. And, and that's, you know, that curved design that you see at the bottom as you pass Green Hills and then through King and Queenston, that design is as a result of some of that compromise. And that was to avoid the creek, leave it in its current state. Of course, it was rechannelized um, in, in other areas, uh, specifically around the golf course. And, and um, But in, in that area in particular, um, the geometry of the road is uh, designed in such a way that it protects the creek. Okay, so... Uh, from the mo- first moment I drove on that uh, at night, I, I always said it, it's it's awfully dark, and and I know yeah. a lot of roads are, and and you've heard that from day one, I'm sure, from a lot of the people that have used that road. So you you've had staff to come back, and they've essentially come back with a report, I guess, from a, another set of of experts here that basically say, yeah, it, it does need more lighting. What's your reaction to that? Well, that uh, came as a surprise to me because, as you know, you had me on back in, I think, 2013, Bill, on the show to talk about my original request, mm-hmm. which was to, you know, add some additional lighting. And to be clear, as a road user several times a day, um, you know, as I was making my way through the first, you know, couple of years of operation, specifically that area around Dartnell, as you're getting, as you're transitioning from the link onto Red Hill, that area right at the top is very dark, yeah. and especially during periods of inclement weather. So if there's uh, snow or ice um, or even, you know, rain on the road, for me, um, you know, driving through inclement weather conditions, it's very hard to follow um, the, the lines on the road. And so um, I had heard similar complaints from, you know, not too many, but a handful of residents who would casually call or I'd run into them at the grocery store and they'd say, you know, Chad, I'm finding it difficult to see the lines as I'm heading around that bend at the top. So back in 13, um, 2013, I, I went to Public Works and asked that we conduct a safety review. You know, I, I'd always been told that, uh, you know, lights weren't permitted because it was, um, you know, there were environmental reasons. There were issues as it relates to wildlife. It, it, there was mention of light pollution. But I thought maybe standards had changed to a point where in 2013, there may be an opportunity for some limited addition and, uh, uh, and illumination in certain areas where it, it may be warranted from a safety perspective. And so we we asked our staff to go off. That study was conducted. It was the first one conducted on the road, and it came back and suggested that, um, you know, that, that for light pollution reasons and other issues that it, that it wasn't warranted. And um, and that same request was made, I think, the, sub- the next safety review was from Councillor Marula just two or three years later, and those same terms were used in that report that uh, it would be there'd be detrimental environmental impact. Um, there are restrictions, so to speak. And this most recent report says something different. It says that um, lights were never prohibited, um, that um, they are are permitted, and uh, they may actually be warranted uh, in in certain areas. So lots of questions at this point in time, Bill, in terms of kind of the mixed messages that have been sent. Um, my desire back in 2013 was to see some additional illumination, and certainly there'd be a, a, a public process to that. You know, as you mentioned, there are people who permanently reside adjacent to the road. 
um, lighting, as, the, as today's article references, Matthew's article in the Spectator references, lighting has changed a lot in terms of uh, the type of lighting that can now be installed along uh, major thoroughfares. And so it's not like the 1970s, where once you put the pole in, it's, you know, basically, um, it's uncontrolled. Today, it's much more uh, design-friendly, uh, um, and uh, it can be controlled. It can be specifically directed to certain areas, and light pollution can be reduced just based on the type of poles and the type of lights you use. So so I, I'm, you know, as today's article says, I'm, uh, I was surprised to see the recent assessment done by the SEMA report, which really is contrary to some of the past comments and statements that have been made to council and well, And that's the takeaway I from got from that. Reviews. I mean, we can talk about lighting or no lighting, and I understand mm-hmm. the environmental concerns, but we covered that, that topic extensively on this program, and you're right. I, you, you've yeah. been on, Sam's been on, I've had other councillors, Tom Jackson and other councillors uh, whose, whose wards abut the, the, that part of the road. Mm-hmm. And, and for the, this report to say lighting was never uh, an ob, a problem, it was, was never banned, it's, yes, it was. Mm-hmm. Or somebody, anyway, and staff said it was, because that's the information that you guys were given. And for this report to come back and say, no, it was never prohibited, I, I, I find just totally mind-boggling, because that's yep. totally new information to us, because you fought for this. The compromise you got was cat's eyes on there, which is, which mm-hmm. is a good that's idea, right. but yeah. not as good as lighting. And, and you yep. thought, okay, if that's all we're allowed to do, I guess that's what we're going to do. But for these guys to come back with this report and say, no, no, you could have put lighting in there any time. Uh, which is totally contrary to what you've been told by staff, which is, in my mind, strike two. I mean, there's this report, and now you got somebody on staff was misleading you at that time by saying, no, you can't do that. And it even suggests, Bill, that going back to the environmental assessment, it says that the illumination was not part of the original design of both parkways. So that uh, in itself even takes it back further to the, to the 1990s. So lo- lots of questions at this point in time in terms of where we're going. I mean, uh, Obviously, there's been a public push and a political push from almost, you know, day one to see safety improvements, and not just for lighting, but for other things. And it's hard to make, you know, decisions when you don't have either all the information or the right information. And, and all I can say is that we're going to keep asking for it. I know Councillor Marula and Councillor Jackson and, and others, Councillor Clark, you know, are always looking for ways and means in which to improve it. There's a long list of here of improvements for Council to consider. I can't see why we wouldn't implement and all of them, as we have with all of the other reports that have been presented. And um, and it's always about pushing the envelope and, and trying to find ways and means in which to to find opportunities to make the road safer. And again, you know, we know that through this report, what it does have in common with all the others that we've received is that safe, that speeding is a, a huge issue on the road. And this one even went further to talk about how many vehicles are speeding. And, and it, it suggests that on coming down the Red Hill, that 34% of the vehicles that are making their way down that hill are going over 100 kilometers an hour. And, of course, the posted speed limit uh, normally is 90. It's, it's now 80 in certain space, uh, places. But to, to know that a third of the traffic coming down is going at least 20 kilometers over the posted speed limit is a, is a problem. And so I, I, you know, I don't want to discount the fact that lighting is going to improve things, but if, if people's driving habits don't improve, you can have all the lights you want on that road if people are going 120, 130, 140. And we've even seen, you know, and I think it's been covered on, on your show and other places where cars have been impounded oh, yeah. um, in, on that stretch of road by the police for going so far over the speed limit. That continues to be a problem. So, I, again, back to driver education, and, and we can do all the things in the world to, to design the road to make it as safe as possible. But if speeding continues to be a problem, 
then, uh, you know, that's that's a difficult difficult issue to overcome. There's no and, doubt. And, and look, I understand that there's an allowance, because I know we've had a, a number of people that have chimed in on, on that particular issue. And, and mm-hmm. I know that, that engineers have told us that if a road is designed uh, and, and you decide the speed's going to be, for instance, 90 kilometers per hour, mm-hmm. it, there's really an allowance of about 10 or 12 kilometers above that for road safety, because they understand that's that right. not everybody's going to comply. Uh, but when you're going 20 or 30 kilometers over, obviously you're, you're, you're taking uh, your, your life into your hands or somebody else's life into your hands when you do that. But I guess mm-hmm. one of the more troubling aspects of this report, though, is, is here we are with uh, the, the concern about lighting at the top. And that's not even the most controversial part of the roadway, uh, mm-hmm. uh, based on some of the other reports that you guys never did see, of course, with, with some of those, those collision locations down below. And, mm-hmm. and it, it now, because we used to say, well, it's just one little stretch here down by King Street and, and, and May, uh, down around Queenston Road, et cetera, and all those curves. Now mm-hmm. we're finding out, now there's some major safety concerns here. I mean, it, it's got to give you some second thoughts, Chad, that maybe we need to relook at this whole project right now. Not, not whether or not we should have had it, but the yep. design of it and whether or not you guys were given totally clear and concise information about this from day one. Yeah, and, t- and two issues to address that, Bill. Number one is obviously we're going to have a, an official investigation that will get to the bottom of all of the information that's pre- been presented historically and who knew what at what point in time. And, you know, I've certainly seen all the social media stuff that goes on, and so we'll, we'll have an, an open and transparent process there, and, and people will, will get an opportunity to see all the information Second, um, and we've already approved this, and, and that is that, you know, we're going to be now looking at all components of the road. We're now, you know, an, an, um, almost two decades through since the original environmental assessment was done. Um, it's, you know, been well over a decade now since the road opened. And so the motion that we passed, uh, and I know it was overshadowed by much more important things to cover as part of this review, but the motion we passed last week was to look at everything in terms of going, looking at the geometry of the road, um, looking at all aspects of safety design again, uh, we're obviously, in, you know, and you've covered this in different forums, Bill, and that is the um, widening to six lanes. Um, we're also talking about where we go with the province because you can't widen the road to six lanes until you resolve the bottleneck issues at the 403 out in Ancaster Way and the QEW issues, you know, close to the lake and, and the Stony Creek area. So, and of course, when you widen it, then you're into the whole issue of the medians, which has been a topic of conversation as well. So all of these issues will be part of um, of a review that's coming up. Um, you know, we approve the funding to go out and, and hire um, uh, and to go through the, uh, uh, the hire a consultant to go through that process. We'll, we'll need certainly some assistance externally to do that. And uh, all of those issues will get us to, I think. A place where the road is safer and uh, and modern and we'll be using utilizing modern standards. A lot has changed since the 1990s when this originally had to go through it, the original hoops and hurdles for the environmental assessment at the provincial level. And so I'm I'm anxious to see the results and findings of of those studies and and you know I'm sure Councillor Marula and I and, and Council and the Mayor will continue to find ways and means in which to make the road safer in the interim. Well, and which leads to the debate about actually who's going to do that study. But we'll get to that. That's a, a date for another day, I guess, after you get mm-hmm. your report from the consultants. Chad, thanks so much for the update on this. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks, Bill. Chad Collins, the uh, counselor for Ward 5, which, of course, uh, abuts, well, it's right in the middle, I guess, of the uh, the, uh, the Red Hill Valley Parkway. And the controversy continues. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Boy, there's so much going on at Queen's Park and in Ottawa these last couple of days that uh, some of the... Uh, other stories that we really should be talking about and paying attention to kind of get shoved off to the side. And that happened yesterday, of course, at Queen's Park, uh, the first day back for the Ontario legislature after their break. And uh, 
uh, the student protest uh, dominated the news, obviously, because of what happened uh, in the galleries in question period. And, of course, the uh, big uh, display that went on outside on the front lawn of Queen's Park. But uh, among that, those other elements, was uh, some pretty significant changes that the government announced about uh, the the Police Act, Ontario's police oversight system specifically. Uh, They didn't do that at Queen's Park. It was done at another announcement. But uh, a lot of people are worried about some of the concerns and about oversight. And we've had discussions about this for many, many years on this program, about police oversight, about how long it takes. By the way, it's too long for a number of these investigations to take place, and uh, who does who does what, who reports to what. Well, the previous government tried to address some of those with some le- new legislation that uh, raised some great concerns among not just police officers, but people in the public as well. So the Ontario government has now uh, put forth their changes to uh, the police oversight system. Joining us to talk about this is Kevin Bryan. Kevin is a professor at Seneca College and also a uh, retired police officer. Kevin, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Uh, you're welcome, Bill. Good morning. Uh, good to have you with us. Listen, let me ask you first of all, just to maybe just set the scene from this. Uh, as we mentioned, the, the Wynn government uh, decided to enact some changes based on a number of concerns and complaints that they got. Uh, this is, uh, I, I don't know if, necessarily know if you can qualify this as an about face on this, but it seems as if an awful lot of the stuff that they brought in, they've just kind of chucked to the side. But there are some other revisions here, too. What are your thoughts on what they proposed? Well, I think it comes back. I think it comes down to uh, the, the conservatives supporting, being more supportive of the police uh, than the liberal government was. And, and uh, full disclosure, I'm a former police officer and biased a little bit that way, although I, I do try and stay unbiased. But but when you look at, at, at some of the uh, actions of the SIU and of the uh, uh, police watchdog agencies, you know what, it, it calls for change. And, and as you said, it, it's too long for these investigations to take place. You know, if we want to look at the Danforth shooter instance, for yeah. for instance, like why was that six months to solve that and not six minutes, for goodness sakes? You know, the autopsy was the day after or at least the Tuesday following the shooting. And, and, and I, mean, I mean, they're going to know right away it was a self-inflicted, self-inflicted injury, either by the caliber of the bullet that was, that was uh, recovered or by the angle of the entrance into the, into the deceased. And with that, the SIU should have cleared them right at that point. And, and instead of waiting, make, making the officers wait through Christmas and wait through, like, I, I don't get it. And, and, and when you have instances like that, where all the public is saying, you know, they, what the heck is taking so long? Uh, you know what? It, it, it screams for some changes, in my opinion. And, and, and this four months that they're now um, put into place, I don't see that as, a, as an issue. And anybody who's complaining about the four months, they've left the caveat in there that if they want to, uh, if it's going to take longer than that, just give them a reason why. Because I have no reason why it should have took six months to clear the officers in the Danforth case. Well, and you know as well, Kevin, that we've had a number of incidents here in Hamilton over the last four or five years uh, where that have involved uh, these sorts of investigations. And as you mentioned, the, the longer these things drag out, it's it's certainly unfair to to the the victims and the family members of victims that are in these incidents, and certainly to the police officers as well, because uh, it goes on and on and on. There's there's speculation in the absence of any information, and that speculation grows. Uh, and then the report, report finally comes out, and it's almost anticlimactic right now because of all the the, the, the conjecture that's gone in in the meantime. And, and that's what I was, you know, and, and I'm not sure of this, but they don't seem to release the final verdict until the report is completely written. I don't know if uh, some type of uh, uh, advanced notification is given to the officers or to the family as to how this thing is going to turn out 
or how it's going, you know, maybe months prior or something along those lines. But it certainly should be. If, if, it's, if they're going to wait until somebody's had the chance to dot all the I's and cross all the T's before they, uh, before they release their findings, um, th- that leaves people in suspense way too long as to, as to what the final outcome might be. Was there too much red tape in in the system uh, until this announcement yesterday? And, I, and this is the one that's still in place. But I, I just remember back when the Attorney General under the Wind government announced their changes to this, uh, my first reaction was uh, that you've just added about three different layers of bureaucracy to this whole thing. Exactly. And, and the Ford government or the Conservatives has kind of uh, stripped some of that away. Um, and, and I think that's a good thing. Try, you know, expedite things, make things go quicker. I mean, if you have to approve a little bit of overtime or hire a few more people, then then, then so be it. That's what, uh, you know, I, the resources that you have, I don't know if they're putting them in the proper use. I think also, Bill, what it comes down to is, is some of the investigations that the SIU is taking on. It's almost like they're afraid to say no. Um, and one of the things that still kind of bothers me a little bit is is when they talk about serious injury. You know, some people consider, you know, serious injury to be uh, life-threatening conditions. Some people, you know, somebody breaks an arm and, and, and all of a sudden, oh, that's a serious injury and, and the SIU uh, invokes their mandate on something along those lines. And uh, I, I think they really have to kind of identify where are they going with this serious injury. If, if I'm in a pursuit with a stolen vehicle and the vehicle slides into the ditch and, and, and the passenger breaks his arm, is that really an SIU case? No, it shouldn't be, in my humble opinion. But, you know, unfortunately, the SIU gets notified somebody's been injured in this accident. Uh, we have a pursuit involved, and the SIU invokes, oh, you're wasting manpower, you're wasting time. It, it, it's not something that the police did anything criminal in. And, and that's where I kind of like that they're kind of ang- angling towards um, any criminal activity by a police officer, the SIU will invoke. Uh, well, that's kind of so. That's good. Well, one of the things that I was concerned about, and and, and it, I know that uh, the attorney general addressed this yesterday. Uh, I, again, for the average individual, and and uh, you, as you mentioned, you're you're a former police officer, so you've got a little more inside baseball information than than most of us would have, Kevin. But for somebody, for instance, as a citizen wants to make a complaint or wants to do an investigation or even ask for an investigation, uh, you don't know who to contact. Is it the SIU? Is it the Officer of the Independent Police Review? Is it uh, the Ontario Civilian Police Commission? Uh, nobody really knows what those bodies are or what their responsibilities are or who does what. Yeah, and I well, it's certainly not the SIU. Um, the SIU kind of is invoked uh, uh, through a police uh, police initiation, um, uh, but the Office of the Independent Police Review Director, that's kind of one of the places to go. It, it usually starts. It usually starts with somebody going to the police, uh, um, the police station and filing their complaint there. Now, if it's something that was, uh, and, and most of these complaints just usually deal with, I, I don't feel like I was treated fairly, um, the, uh, the, the officer was rude to me, um, you know, that type of, and, and those all get sorted at the, uh, at the police station. And if it can't be sorted, then it would go down to the OIPRD. But if it's something where the police aren't doing a proper investigation into my case or something like that, you know, that, that's where you would, uh, you know, head to the OIPRD. But as you say, people don't know where to go. And, and, you know, online, you know, thank goodness we have, uh, you know, Google and stuff like that now where we can, uh, you know, search these places and, uh, and people can move forward with their complaints and, uh, and, the streamlining that he's done with regards to um, the OIPRD now can send it to a uh, back to the police department to be sorted, 
or to a an outside agency that's kind of always been the the way it's it's gone and and, and the way it's uh it's played out with regards to most complaints. Well, was there too much on their plate before, Kevin? I mean, I mean, with the, the the legislation that was introduced by the by the Liberal government, it was Bill One Seventy Five, by the way, that we're referring yeah, yeah. to. Uh, you know, because I, I I guess one of the concerns that I've heard anyway was workload. Is that okay? Here's another file. Look after this one. And then when when people would complain about the length of time it was taking for some of these studies to be completed, they say, "Look, we're going as fast as we can, but I got thirty things going at once." And, and that's the case. And it's, it it comes from taking on cases that are, are just not serious you like you know wh- why waste your time with you know the, an officer was rude to me or you know like get it sorted have an apology get that thing sorted out like you don't have to be tying up uh you know investigate it takes it probably takes just for one you know com- complaint of an officer being rude or, or or swearing or something like that in, in in the presence of someone it probably takes a day for somebody to clear that case off of their workload you know and and what a waste of time, you know. Okay, but but here's here's the I'm just let's let's play devil's advocate here for a second. Yep. One of the reasons I I think they put that sort of thing in there, as you say, just about every complaint would would go before one of these commissions, was because a number of people in the public have complained, and you I'm sure you heard this when you were on the job too, Kevin. That look at if it you know these guys look after themselves. If I go and talk to the chief or to or to the uh, you know whoever's in charge of a particular division, uh, it's just going to get washed away. It's going to get swept under the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fine, fine. That we need some independent body to do that. Now, that's the complaint. So the government, of course, reacted with Bill 175 and said, okay, fine, you can go above that. Are you confident, though, with, with your experience as, as a police officer, that those complaints are going to be handled at the local level uh, from an objective standpoint? I think they are now. And you want to know something, you know, uh, going back 30 years and 20 years and 10 years ago when I was policing, I, I'm not saying it always was, especially back at the old day, you know, you went into complaint with the sergeant something on the desk and you wound up uh, in trouble before you went in type thing, you know, with the old time coppers and stuff like that. But th- th- there's so much transparency now, you know, somebody goes in, there, everything's recorded, everything's notes are taken, everything, you know, th- th- there's no shuffling anything under the rug if somebody goes in with a valid complaint anymore. If, if somebody goes in with a valid complaint, it is dealt with. And, and uh, you know what, I, I know that, you don't want to be the officer that the the, the person's making the complaint about because uh, you, you've got some questions to answer for. So, so I, I I really feel that uh, on on uh, on a level where it comes down to um, a minor complaints and stuff like that, they're, they're dealt with adequately at the uh, local police department. Well, one of the reasons, yeah, yeah, one of the reasons I questioned the, the legislation when it came out. The, I'm going back to the leg, the Bill 175 again. Uh, is because it seemed to almost just do an end run around the internal affairs departments of police services uh, right around the province. And, and, and I know from talking to, to men and women that are on the job that, uh, that the internal affairs department does a pretty thorough job. I mean, they're not the friend of the officer that's complaining. I mean, they, they lift every rock and see what's going on there before they issue a report. And it they just do. seemed as if they got shoved to the side and said, don't worry, this is all going to be handled out of Toronto now. They, they, they do. And, and, and uh, you know what, I, I've, I've, been in front of the uh, the uh, internal affairs department a couple of times. Never as somebody who's been in trouble, but as witness officer to certain things that have happened. And they wanted to talk to me and say see what I saw with regards to an officer's conduct. And you know, as you're sitting there, you you feel like you're on the bloody stand in a court in a, in a major court case as, as these guys are interviewing you. And these are guys you know. These yeah. are guys that you've, you've you've 
been on the police department with for 20, 15, 20 years, and, and, and they're sitting there questioning you, and it's like, you know, you, you feel pressured, you know, you really do. It, it's not a good feeling, even as a witness officer, as opposed to the officer who the complaint is made against. So the legislation that's being proposed, and, and will eventually pass, I mean, we're dealing with a majority yeah. government here, uh, now says that uh, the SIU, as you talked about earlier, Kevin, will still be responsible for use of force uh, concerns, uh, including arrests or motor vehicle pursuits uh, that result in serious injury or death, or when an officer discharge, discharges a firearm. That's pretty much the way it's always been, hasn't it? Yeah, pretty pretty close, except I, I think they'll be able to step away from, from certain incidents with regards to... Um, uh, suicides or, 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 or accident or, or deaths when the officer is, is, is present. I mean, it, I think it's going to cut down very, very minimally on, on the number of, uh, 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 times that the SIU actually invokes. I, I, I think that, um, you know, it, it really is, as you said, very similar to what it is. And, and I think the SIU will kind of, um, there, there's some concern there as the police won't contact the SIU anymore with regards to certain cases. But the way I see it going is that if I phone the SIU as a, as a supervisor and say one of my officers was in a pursuit, the, um, the uh, suspect uh, of, of the vehicle broke his leg, and if the SIU says, I'm not going to, we're not going to invoke on that, we're not, you guys deal with it, uh, we're not interested, maybe the next time then, that that sergeant or that supervisor doesn't call the police when the same type of uh, injury occurs. Uh, if the SIU does invoke, I think then that officer will continue to, 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 to make the call. What this seems to be doing, uh, the direction they seem to be going anyway, Kevin, is is giving more authority to, to local police services. And I know that, for instance, the Ontario Chiefs of Police Association has been asking for that for years, uh, for things like uh, uh, you know uh, suspensions with pay, etc., that should be under the jurisdiction of the chief as opposed yeah. to you know a, a, a province-wide policy. And it kind of sounds as if they're doing that with some of these situations, because I'm looking at one of the clauses here that uh, Minister Mulvaney talked about yesterday, and it basically says, look, if the chief thinks that this is bigger and, and more controversial, they will send it up to the SIU and ask them to come in. Right, and 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 uh, I think they left in place also the uh, uh, the right to suspend with pay, which yeah. which to me is very good. I mean, you know, you have criminal officers out there, officers who have committed obvious criminal activity, who are obviously going to jail down the road, and they're they're being paid until they actually step into custody, so to speak. And and that you you shake your head at something like that. Um, you know, there's no way they should be being paid while they're. Uh, under criminal investigation, and uh, there's strong evidence that uh, that they're responsible for for what actions they did. Uh, you know, at that point, you know, you can't fire them yet, but you, you should be able to. For goodness sakes, I mean. Well, we've uh, had examples here in Hamilton, and I'm sure you've yeah. seen some of them too, Kevin. Well, they they'll, they'll, they're charges pending, and they just rag the puck, rag the puck. You know, delay, delay, exactly. and then they retire. And of course, the, the <laughs> charges are dropped then because you can't charge them under the Police Services Act if they're not a cop anymore. There you go. So, but but this this gives the jurisdiction to the chief to to the local yep. chief to say yeah yeah they can have a suspension with pay or no if it's an egregious act uh, that they're being charged with maybe not uh, so yep. that's staying in place uh, exactly. one of the other uh, aspects that I think a lot of people were hoping the government was going to address here uh, was carding uh, which has been very controversial with every police service in Hamilton mm-hmm. Toronto and everywhere else uh, it's not mentioned here but it, they did reiterate the policy that that any any profiling that's done based on race etc uh, is is not uh, to be allowed and, that, and nor was it in any police service 
Uh, but that gets us into a very interesting discussion. I'm sure you've covered this uh, when you're with your classes at Seneca. Uh, the difference between street checks and and carding. I, I, too, too many times I've noticed in this debate, people have conflated those two issues. I, I think they are conflated. You know, I, I was uh, I, I, I I was a police officer in Richmond Hill back when there was almost uh, it was almost entirely uh, WASP community, white Anglo-Saxon community. It was almost entirely and and you know, uh, growing up as a young officer in in, in the Richmond Hill area. Uh, I never carded a person of uh, color or a visible minority, you know, in, in the first five, ten years of my career, for goodness sakes. And when you say carding, really what it is is it, it's kind of just you're in a suspicious circumstances, at least, uh, you know, you're in suspicious circumstances, you're, you're somewhere you shouldn't be, or you're somewhere where what the heck are you doing here with two or three people? You take the, the information of the three people, throw in, a you know, some type of a small little form, and down the road that would, you know, if... Um, if I stumbled on another person again, it might show me who my associates were because the you know the per, the officer uh, recorded who the the two or three people were. But uh, so you know, carding to me was I think it you know really is based on the the era of policing and 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 the the um, the, the area that you're policing uh, as to the demographic of of the persons that you would be recording. Well, it's uh, going to be an interesting part of the debate, I guess, when this finally gets introduced into the legislature and the debate starts. But uh, uh, on first blush, though, it looks like uh, this covers an awful lot of the concerns that people have. Kevin, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. You too, Bill. Anytime. I Take care. You. Kevin Bryan, professor, professor rather, at Seneca College, uh, and of course a retired police officer, as you mentioned, with uh, Metro in uh, the Richmond Hill area for many years. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, a busy day up in Ottawa today with uh, the uh, Parliamentary Judicial Committee finally meeting, and uh, they say they are going to probe the SNC-Lavalin situation. Uh, you got to figure that, uh, that Jody Wilson-Raybould's name will come up once or twice, obviously, as, as will the Prime Minister's. Uh, as uh, one scribe suggested uh, to say on social media, uh, boy, an awful lot of drama, but not too many facts about this issue. Maybe we'll find some later on today. Joining us to talk about this is Christo Avalos, who is a Social Science and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow in history at the, the University of Toronto. Christo, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. I like I like that assessment. Uh, lots of speculation, lots of drama, but new facts. I, I guess one of the things that frustrates an awful lot of us right now is we still don't know who said what to whom in this situation. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, that's certainly part of it. I mean, I think there, there there's a lot of things here that, that I, I think are at least plausible. And, and again, with with these sorts of things, you, it's often good to apply Occam's razor, which is to say, you know, the most likely option is is often the case. And it really does seem that, you know, this is an important company to Canada. It's an important company to Quebec. It's an important company to the Liberal Party, which is donated a lot of money to the party historically. Um, the company would be in a lot of trouble if a certain law was applied to them. The prime minister's office applied pressure to a justice minister who refused to play along, and she was fired for it. And then she quit the cabinet. And then in recent days, we've had the person who is largely in charge of the PMO, Jerry Butts, quit his position. Um, and now there may or may not be a bit of a reconciliation between uh, the government and Jody Wilson-Raybould, who's having meetings with them kind of in the wake of this resignation. So it really does seem to me that there is something here. And I think that, you know, Canadians need to have a balance here. Yes, you know, it's important to have facts, but it's also important to realize that, you know, this isn't someone's life at stake here. This isn't criminal court. Preponderance of evidence is often the best thing we'll get. 
So I think it's important to look at the preponderance of evidence, and, and, and I think it's clear there has been impropriety here. One of the things that uh, I, I think probably makes this even more frustrating for for those of us that are trying to get some answers here, Christo, is uh, there's a very fine line and, and a very gray area here. Uh, it's okay to talk about situations like uh, the Laughlin situation, uh, but if you actually direct a minister to do something about it, well, you've crossed that line. And we still don't know. Uh, we, uh, we do know there was a conversation. The prime minister's admitted that he did talk to, to at that time, Minister uh, Wilson Raybould about this, but we don't know the text of the context, we don't, uh, of, of what she actually said. And that really is uh, the devil's in the details of what, what actually was said, isn't it? No, no, certainly. But I mean, again, the, the, the actions happen. I mean, again, this is, you have to say the, the facts have to play out. This is a company that has a special importance to Quebec, which is essential to the Liberals' victory. It's a company that has close ties to the Liberal Party. It's a company that, if the law was applied to them as the law is written, would no longer be able to bid for contracts, and that that would affect Quebec, and that would affect um, the Liberal Party, one of the Liberal Party's key corporate allies. And so the Justice Minister, who uh, seemed to have want to apply the law, was pressured not to do so, and then this was in part her reason for demotion. I don't think really there's any other reasonable explanation, so we have to go with that. And I think that, to a certain degree, we've been seeing almost a kind of Trumpian aversion from a lot of liberals on social media to this, this idea that, well, this is fake news, but the Globe and Mail, you know, uh, I think has had done credible journalism here, and I think the reality is we have to deal with the fact that if this is not from the Prime Minister, then maybe it was Gerald Butts who did something of the sort. And again, this is perhaps why you're seeing a bit of a reconciliation between Jody Wilson-Raybould, who is now who you know, has, hasn't really specified exactly what her role is, but she has made it clear, for instance, that she hasn't left caucus. She has been having meetings with elements of the cabinet. And some people are hinting that maybe she's going to find a way back to cabinet, maybe being that the, the key dispute, which maybe was less between her and Trudeau, and maybe more between Trudeau's staff and her, has been at least patched over. And I think that's where we have to operate. And again, that's one of the interesting aspects about this, the fact that uh, I think she shocked a lot of people when she came out of that cabinet meeting yesterday. I don't think anybody saw that coming. Uh, and that's led to the speculation that, uh, and I guess the what-if question we have to ask here, Christo, if, if, if the prime minister puts her back in cabinet in whatever portfolio, or could he even be a minister without portfolio? I mean, that's been known to happen in the past, too. Uh, then she's right back into the, the cabinet confidentiality, and she's probably not going to say anything to this committee. I mean, you know, that's certainly a factor here, and it will raise a lot of questions. You know, it could be the case that the government could spin it in saying that, you know, there was a, uh, actions by the, the government uh, in question, just, just yeah, there's actions to the government in question that basically um, the PMO basically uh, overstepped its bounds. The, the, the issue's been kind of played over. But, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen there, frankly. I think there's a chance that they, they realize that, that Wilson Raybould is a, is a very popular minister. It's an indigenous woman in a, at a time where um, that, that has a lot of symbolism. And the government might want to patch it over. And maybe it's a sense that, again, the caucus was divided. If you listen to the social media or follow the social media profiles of a lot of prominent liberals, many of them the, the, the female liberal MPs, they were not happy with how she was treated uh, during this whole affair. And having her back in cabinet maybe is not even just about, you know, the politics of, of cabinet solidarity uh, and, and secrecy, but the reality that the party was not happy with her being out of cabinet. And this could be Trudeau's kind of, um, you know, way to, uh, to, to, I guess, appease his, his caucus. 
And and that runs contrary to what we heard. I mean, the day that it was announced that she was no longer going to be the Attorney General and Justice Minister, uh, you saw the tweets, Christo, as, as I'm sure we all did, that suggested, well, she's not a team player. She's uh, she's uh, you know kind of rude to staff and doesn't get along well with her fellow MPs. Uh, but the the outpouring of support that I saw from from caucus members and from other liberal insiders was was totally contrary to that. So I, you wonder who was actually trying to spin that. No, certainly. That's why I think there was a bit of a divide, frankly. I think on the one hand, you had uh, the, 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 the kind of media staff, the communications team, maybe the PMO, wanting to, you know, retroactively justify the, the, the move, saying like, well, we removed her from this position because, you know, she wasn't a team player. Or we removed her, as we've heard since, that maybe it's because Scott Bryson left and they needed to do a shuffle. Or she was removed because she doesn't speak French. But the reality is, is that I don't think those excuses played very well. And many have said that, you know, this ties in with the prime ministers kind of referring to her as Jody at that press conference and referring to all the male ministers kind of by their, by their full titles and names. And, and this ties into this. And a lot of people felt that the, the narrative of how she was talked about after that, you know, she was almost, you know, uh, felt she was too self-important and things like that, felt that it was kind of tinged with a bit of like misogyny and racism. So it didn't really play very well. And I think the government wanted to kind of find a way to, to, to lean away from, from that action. Because again, I don't think that was popular with, with, with liberals. Yeah. And nobody was buying that stuff anyway, because we heard all those rumors too. Well, she's not bilingual. Uh, well, neither is Ralph Goodale. He's been in the cabinet for how many years now? So that, that, that that's not a box you can check off. So there was something going on here. And, and invariably when there's spin like that, uh, you, you first, I, anyway, my impression is the first thing you look at is the staff. No, no, certainly, yeah, you know, 100%. I mean, again, people realize that, you know, in, in our system, the, the prime minister is incredibly powerful in a majority government, but the power is not located strictly in one area. There's the caucus, there's cabinet, there's the PMO, there's, you know, various wings, and sometimes those things fall out of sync. And I think this is one of those cases where the PMO, again, with it, it seemed to have more of a, a kind of objective with the SNC-Lavalin issue, but it, it didn't necessarily follow that caucus was in full support of, say, the removal of Jody Wilson-Raybould. And I think that, you know, the, the, the staff maybe overplayed their hand. And this could be, and again, this is in part speculation, this could be one of the reasons why there was a key staff change at the PMO because it was felt that, you know, there, there needed to be, you know, a, a bit of a reconciliation there, for lack of a better term, between uh, the caucus and, and, and the prime minister's office, because maybe some people didn't like how this process went down. And, and there's always going to be those, those, you know, people that are going to say, well, look, at this goes right to the top, uh, like Watergate did. I mean, I mean, eventually Nixon was implicated in that. But, but there can also be a buffer. And as you mentioned, Crystal, that can oftentimes be somebody in the staff. Uh, I remember the Iran-Contra deal that back in the States under the Reagan administration. And I know that the, the, the Democrats that are doing that investigation wanted so much to know that, think that Reagan was the top. Apparently he wasn't. Uh, the Senate expense scandal here may be a great example on this side of the border. Uh, you know, everybody wanted to think that Stephen Harper's a hands-on guy. He must have directed all of this. But Na- Nigel Wright took the fall for that. Uh, it was never charged, as it turned out. But again, there's a senior staff member that says, no, the buck stops here with me. Uh, but Butts isn't admitting to anything. I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, this guy has all this power, and maybe he was the one that had that conversation. Maybe he was the one that suggested that there should be a cabinet shuffle, and, and Trudeau obviously took his advice on this. But for him to actually step down and say, I still did nothing wrong, I didn't talk to anybody, uh, still raises more questions. I mean, somebody did, and if it wasn't him, then it's really only one other option, isn't there? 
Well, yeah, no, no, certainly. I mean, I think it's a, a couple things. One, Butts was, you know, Trudeau's kind of principal secretary. He's an incredibly important and powerful man, probably Canada's most powerful non-elected person, uh, at least until he left his position. So it's very much the case that he plays a role uh, within the kind of day-to-day operation of, of, this, of this federal government. Um, and it is conceivable, of course, that on, non, on, on every, not, the prime minister can't be uh, you know, directly involved on every issue, and this is why the prime minister has staff. You know, here, it's an interesting point. We don't necessarily know, and I think you're right in making, that, in making a good observation in comparison to, to Nigel Wright and Stephen Harper. And I think one of the reasons you have people fall on the sword isn't even always that it's their fault, but that, that by having someone fall on the sword, the scandal maybe has a chance to die or at least be shifted. And so when Nigel Wright took the fall, the scandal didn't go away. But then I think that in him saying, well, I did something. It was wrong of me to do it. I'm leaving the position. It wasn't Prime Minister Harper's fault. Like, please leave him alone. Jerry Butts here, Mr. Butts, left the position, didn't really admit to any wrongdoing. And so I think it more continued the drip, drip, drip of, of controversy, and that's not good. I mean, if you're a government and you have a scandal, at the very least, you kind of want the scandal to hit and then take the brunt and then move on. But when, with, you, with a resignation like that, that, that raises questions rather than answers them, it, it, it doesn't give that kind of closure. And again, you have to ask, well, why did he quit? Did he quit because he actually felt he did something wrong? Did he quit because he is a scapegoat? And the reality with these statements of resignation is that you can't just take them as matter of fact. They're a political document as, as much as any other political document. And, and I think you're right in saying that it wasn't necessarily helpful in terms of uh, the kind of resignation that helps a prime minister uh, break a scandal. The uh, first couple of days, and I'm sure probably the better part of the day, is going to be taken up with, uh, I guess, ancillary issues here. And there are quite a few of those, aren't there, Christo? Vis-a-vis, first of all, the the legislation that they passed uh, late, or I guess it was in the budget last year, that essentially uh, gave companies like uh, SCN Levin uh, an out clause uh, to say, okay, we, we kind of screwed up here, but we don't really want to be criminally charged. We'll pay this huge fine. Uh, and it's it's not unique legislation, as we know Germany and the UK have similar legislation. But it's uh, the timing of this, I guess, is in question right now. That this government would introduce legislation just like that, just around the time that they knew that SCN Levelin was actually going to be in trouble uh, from a, a, a legal standpoint. No, no, certainly the timing doesn't look good, and, and more to that, it was also part of the politics. One of the things that that both both major opposition parties, but you know the Liberals are in power now. Both opposition parties kind of said that one of the things they didn't like about the Harper government was that, you know, he had these big omnibus bills, and, you know, omnibus bills are supposed to be used for a, a series of rather routine things, but, but what the conservatives were accused of doing was, you know, putting actual substantive legislation and burying it in omnibus bills so that they could be passed easier, and that it would be harder for media and the people to kind of to, to see it. And here we have this piece of legislation which was sort of tucked into, you know, larger bills here, and a lot of people felt that was kind of iffy. And now, as you note, the additional timing of it being roughly correspondent to this emerging SNC-Lavalin scandal is rather troubling. Because, again, the, the idea here is that, you know, in a society like ours, we have rule of law. We have this idea that law should be applied evenly and fairly. And we go to countries like China and we say to them, well, look, we, we, we don't put our fingers on the scales for some companies and not others. We don't play that game. We're a country of rules and laws and freedom here. And yet it's clear, or at least it's, 
it's it's plausible that the government here has a legis- piece of legislation which um, doesn't always have to be applied, but which was written as, I think, a sort of tool to help them get around the politics of actually holding companies to account for their actions, and that it just so happens to be applied, or the government wanted to apply it to a company that is, a again, a historically important company to the Liberal Party, and that we just so happen to have a justice minister that just so happened to question the potential ethics of this, and it just so happens that she was removed from her position, and then it just so happens that Justin Trudeau happened to say, well, she stayed in cabinet, so maybe there's no issue, and then it just so happens that less than 24 hours after that, she resigned her position. And so I think really here, that, you know, liberals can say, well, there's, there's no facts here, but the reality is, Occam's razor, is that the government did something wrong, and they're trying to backtrack right now. Uh, let me, I got a little minute left here. Let's let's cut to the quick here. This is a partisan committee. It's it is the parliamentary justice committee, but it's dominated by the governing party, of course, as as any majority government always does with these committees. Are we going to get any answers here? I mean, maybe. I mean, I think that the the the, the, the government part, the governing party in general, has a couple goals here. I think they, if there is scandals here, they want to um, try to not have them come out. But it's hard for them because if they're too obstinate then it'll look bad. So I think they're trying to maybe strike a balance. So for instance, we're hearing that Jody Wilson-Raybould will be speaking to that committee. But again, the line of questioning how it's interpreted about her, like her, her, her confidentiality from her previous position, that's going to be very telling. So the opposition has to raise the issue of saying that, well, can we get the questions we need to be asked asked? What are the guidelines of the questioning? And that's where the devil and the details are going to be. But I think the government is probably smart to not just nakedly exclude her, because that would be too big of a red flag. Christo, thanks as always. Appreciate your time and your perspective on this today. Thanks for having me. Take care. Christo Avalos, of course, from uh, University of Toronto. And we'll uh, keep an eye on what's happening in Ottawa. And any breaking news, of course, we'll get it to you just as soon as it happens. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.